Next up, we have our own Plato's Academy Center president, Donald Robertson, uh, the author of Build Your Resilience and How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And he will be talking about Plutarch on Plutarch and resilience. So thank you, Donald. It's a bit different from talking about stoicism like I usually do. Um, and a little bit different from talking about CBT like I usually do. Uh, resilience is very closely related to cognitive behavioural therapy. Therapists like myself and Tim or Johnny come late, ladies. By the time we see clients, it's already too late. They've already got a problem. Resilience is prevention in mental health. It's why I like to call the holy grail of mental health because prevention is better than cure. Everybody knows that. But uh, there is research on psychological resilience or emotional resilience, but it's kind of it's in its infancy. It's been developing over the past few decades. We still there are a few emerging things that we know, and uh, we can find similar ideas in ancient literature, particularly the Stoics, but also in authors like Plutarch, who <coughs> borrow loads of things from the Stoics sometimes, like while also slagging them off or criticizing them at other times. Um, there's a lot of common ground in ancient literature, as we'll see, and particularly in this piece by Plutarch on tranquility. So I'm going to talk about what Plutarch says that looks like it relates to resilience and what he calls peace of mind. And then I'm going to focus on actual practical takeaways, uh, putting values into action, cognitive distancing and cultivating gratitude. So first of all, what is resilience and how does it relate to whatever it is that Plutarch is talking about? Well, first of all, who is this guy? Plutarch of Chironia uh, is a middle Platonist philosopher. He uh, was born round about 46 AD. Uh, he was also a priest of Apollo at Delphi, uh, which is just outside Athens and not that far um, from his place of birth, from his home. And uh, long story short, uh, the Temple of Apollo in some ways is, is one of the main precursors of ancient Greek philosophy because the Pythia, the priestess there, um, gave pronouncements and there were maxims engraved there that were a major inspiration, as we'll see, we'll see some of them in a moment, on the development of Greek philosophy. So it's interesting, it kind of, in a sense, began with a woman, because it's often said that there aren't many female voices in ancient Greek philosophy. But the Pythia was a, a, a female, uh, a priestess, and uh, Plutarch would have been one of the priests possibly that interpreted some of the sayings of the uh, the Pythia, the priestess. So Plutarch is well known as the author of Parallel Lives, one of the pioneers of biography and of the Moralia. And the essay that we're going to be discussing by him and the excerpts from other authors that I'll mention along the way, I'm going to be paraphrasing. So I'm going to tell you what they said, but I'm going to put it in kind of modern language so it's a bit more accessible. So Plutarch's essay is called Pere Euthymius uh, or it's on Euthymia and it's interesting because that word is translated in loads of different ways as we will see. Sometimes it's translated as cheerfulness, usually translated as on uh, peace of mind or tranquility, sometimes contentment. It's quite a vague word in ancient Greek. It kind of means psychological well-being uh, in a, a broad sense. Plutarch is writing rough notes that he's kind of cobbled together. It looks like they're a little bit rushed, actually. Um, and they're designed to help one of his friends 
in order to give him tips for practical use in daily life in order to achieve this psychological well-being that's associated with mental tranquility. Um, This essay of Plutarch's is written not long after Seneca's uh, De Tranquillitate Animae, um, which is about the same concept. It contains many similar ideas, a very closely related text. Seneca's obviously more Stoic. Plutarch's uh, Middle Platonist, but there's a heavy Stoic influence in this. They both, Plutarch's pretty vague about where he's getting these notes from, um, but it's generally believed that he's drawing to some extent on an, a famous Stoic teacher called Panetius, who also wrote um, an essay by the same title. And the earliest, or the most famous early uh, text called Peri Euthymius is by Democritus and he seems to have kind of set the stage, set a precedent for writing about this subject. So they're responding in part to what he said. And we have an interesting passage in Diogenes Laertius, is kind of a historian, for want of a better way of putting it. He wrote Lives and Opinions of Eminent Philosophers. And Diogenes Laertius talks about Democritus's on Euthymia, and this is how he describes what the word means and what the goal is. He says that according to that text, the original text on the subject, the goal of life is euthymia, which is not identical to pleasure, as some have mistakenly believed, but a state in which the soul proceeds calmly and steadily, untroubled by fear, superstition, or any other violent passion. This Democritus calls well-being and he says he refers to it by a bunch of other synonyms as well so it's calm, it's steady it's free from any irrational or violent or pathological emotion and it's associated with well-being this sounds like what we call emotional wellness today and if you were cultivating that long term and you're taking a preventative approach to stopping things upsetting it, that would be cultivating psychological resilience. It wouldn't be so much therapy, it would be more preventative. There's an interesting little allegory in Aesop's fables about a boar sharpening his tusks. It's the fable of the boar and the fox, I believe it's called. And a fox who's kind of cheeky comes up and says, why are you even wasting your time doing that, buddy? You're sharpening your tusks, but there's no one around. You could just be lazing around, enjoying the sunshine like the rest of us. And the boar says something very profound. He says, listen, you know, you're right. There's no one around at the moment. But when I hear the blast of the huntsman's horn, then it's going to be too late to sharpen my tusks in order to defend myself. So he says in times of peace, prepare for war, basically. Um, And we have to motivate people to do that because by nature they wouldn't prepare for hypothetical future challenges that they're going to face. And so resilience, in a sense, a big part of it, the first step, in a sense, is about motivating people. And we can see Plutarch is doing that in this article. He says, uh, just as fierce dogs bark at every strange sound and can only be calmed by the familiar voice of their master that they've got used to through repetition over time, violent passions such as fear and anger can only be calmed by reasoning, by coping strategies that become familiar through practice, says Plutarch. You need to train yourself in preparation in order to maintain euthymia psychological well-being, resilience, contentment, 
whatever you want to call it. Because life is going to keep throwing stuff at you. Right? So you need to be ready for it. Um, he also, so he says we need to prepare well in advance to face adversity and not be like those who suddenly start praying to the gods only when they're desperate for their assistance. It's too late then. You know, but like someone saying, God, I know I've never prayed to you before, but I really, really need your help right now. So Plutarch thinks this is kind of ridiculous. Remember, he's a priest. You know, someone uh, who wants to be resilient but has never done anything to train themselves in advance is in this ill-prepared situation. He says, those who lack skill in the art of living are elated by good fortune and depressed by adversity. And, you know, they're thrown off both by good experiences and bad experiences. You know, they're like puppets having their strings pulled by fate. And they're greatly disturbed, therefore, by both, or rather by themselves, he says, as much as what is uh, good or bad in their fortune. So let's look at these practical takeaways. And the first one uh, I'm going to call values in action. And one of the first things that Plutarch says, in a lot of ways saying, it's, it's interesting, actually, you know, we could just talk about the advice that a philosopher gives, but... Sometimes it's interesting to say, look, what aren't they saying? And what are they disputing that other people may have said? What are they suggesting it might be bad advice like that you might get from other philosophers or we might get from self-improvement gurus today? And so he begins by addressing, actually in therapy, we often, we usually begin with a client addressing maladaptive coping strategies, many of which they've, they've often learned from self-help literature or websites or self-improvement gurus that are giving bad advice. Um, often what seems like a good way of coping with adversity doesn't work out well in the long run. And, and that's one of the biggest problems in life because those um, strategies that seem to alleviate problems but don't work out well in the long term are kind of addictive. And it's hard for people to realise that they're causing problems for them because they need the benefit of experience to see that. But a therapist, for example, or a psychologist might be able to look at someone and saying, I know that seems to be helping you, but generally other people find that it doesn't work very, out very well for them in the long term. Now, of all the maladaptive coping strategies that you can choose between, and there are many, without a shadow of doubt, the number one most popular coping strategy in the world is avoidance. Animals do it. Children do it, and most adults do it. And it comes in a thousand different flavours. There are many, many different ways that people have of avoiding things. Sometimes they just run out of the room. Sometimes they just never get out of bed. And sometimes they do it by going la, 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 and sticking the fingers in their ears or distracting themselves or doing more subtle or more nuanced things. So subtle forms of avoidance that people can engage in. And sometimes they even turn it into a philosophy of life, and it seems reasonable when they do that at first glance. But Plutarch wants to dispute this. He's smart enough to realise. And he says, one who seeks to relieve emotional disturbance by prescribing inactivity and retreat from friends and public life is a poor physician of the psyche. He virtually says they're a bad psychotherapist. And he quotes Euripides saying, lie still, poor wretch, and move not from your bed. And he says, this is bad advice. It seems at first like it's going to make you feel better. Like, just cut off friends that are bothering you. You know, just have an easy life. Go and live in a Buddhist retreat in the middle of nowhere. Like, get off the internet. Stop reading newspapers. Like, but if you do that long term, you're really just avoiding 
confrontation with stress rather than learning better ways of coping with stress. This will make you less resilient rather than more resilient. And Plutarch realises this. It's pretty smart of him to start with this. So what's missing from a life of avoidance? Plutarch says some philosophers following Democritus claim that doing less is the key to tranquility. And it's kind of an easy option or a shortcut, if you like. But they're mistaken, he says. It's the omission of good acts in our lives that causes more emotional disturbance. We pay a hefty price for avoidance right? because we miss out on the opportunity to exhibit the virtues. And that's really what's rewarding. That's meaningful. That's, you know, ultimately um, what gives us a sense of fulfillment in life. It's going out and facing challenges. Marcus Aurelius says something very similar. Uh, he also has a pop at Democritus. So again, it's interesting, the parallels between these different ancient texts. If you want peace of mind, says the philosopher Democritus, according to Marcus, occupy yourself with few things, like do as little as possible. Marcus says, perhaps it would be better to say, do what is necessary and whatever reason requires of a naturally social animal. This brings not only the tranquility that comes from doing fewer things, but also that which comes from doing them well and living virtuously. So Marcus says, well, this is kind of half true. You know, you can reduce the amount of things that you're doing in life, but really more importantly, you need to focus on doing things that are actually meaningful and rewarding. This increased or uh, valued activities is integral to modern evidence-based treatment for clinical depression, incidentally. So another evidence-based approach that we find in the resilience field is based on the work of Martin Seligman and others that relates to personal values or character strengths. And Plutarch says something that strangely anticipates that. He says, not all pursuits are for everyone, but one must, obeying the Pythian inscription, he means the inscription outside the Temple of Apollo where he worked, um, let's say the, the temple of the Pythia, the priestess there, the, the most famous one that says know thyself or know oneself. It was actually inscribed, we're told, on a pillar at the entrance to the temple, Ganothaisiauton. Then use yourself for that one thing for which nature has fitted you and do not do violence to nature by dragging yourself toward the emulation of one sort of life after another. Like, figure out what it is that you're actually good at, where your talents lie, and then use them, like, in order to live a successful and virtuous life. Because success tends to contribute to feelings of self-efficacy, as we would say today. It's the most important thing psychologists now know that contribute to this this kind of gold dust that we call self-efficacy in psychology, which is kind of like a feeling of confidence in your own ability. Uh, play to your strengths, Plutarch says. Runners aren't discouraged because they don't carry off wrestlers' crowns, but they rejoice in their own. He says, don't try to be a jack of all trades. And this is kind of confusion in a way. So, you know, when people are younger, they're not really sure what they're going to do in the future. But if they don't figure it out, they run the risk of just hopping from one thing to another and never really getting to experience what it's like to realise their potential and exhibit their talents so they don't tap into their ability for success, which would give them uh, ego strength or self-efficacy in practice. We should therefore choose the calling appropriate to ourselves, he says, cultivate it diligently and let the rest alone. This is a quote that uh, Laulia uh, read for us in, in the original Greek. 
from Euripides, and we find this in a number of ancient philosophical texts. This is a lost tragedy by Euripides, but this passage seems to have been really uh, influential, uh, widely known. It does no good to rage at circumstance. Events will take their course with no regard for us, but he who makes the best of those events he lights upon will not fare ill. Remember rightly, Epictetus quotes part of this. Um, it's very stoic sounding, obviously. So in addition to living in accord with our values, we also need to be prepared to deal confidently with frustration and setbacks. And that is what I'm going to discuss in the next section on cognitive distancing. When in a fever, says Plutarch, using very homely, but one of the, the, the most common ancient metaphors to communicate this idea. When in a fever, everything we eat seems bitter and unpleasant to the taste. And yet when we see others taking the same food and finding no displeasure in it, suddenly the lights go on. We no longer continue to blame the food and the drink, but we blame ourselves and our malady. He means that we realise it's something wrong with us, not something wrong with the food. It's easy to confuse. Like this, what we call in a sense, um, it's similar to what we call cognitive fusion today. This simple confusion is absolutely integral to many psychological problems. Not understanding is it the food that's bitter or is there something wrong with my sense of taste? Likewise, says Plutarch, we shall cease blaming and being disgruntled with circumstances if we see other people accepting the same events cheerfully and without offence. This is a still from the movie Seneca and the Creation of Earthquakes starring John Malkovich. This character, Nero, has sunglasses. It's now my go-to illustration for... Um, cognitive distancing so we're looking at the world Aaron Beck said it's like we're looking at the world through tinted lenses we don't realize the world itself isn't blue in this case it's the lenses in the same way we could be looking at the world through catastrophic tinted lenses and not realize that the events that we're looking at aren't inherently catastrophic because other people don't see them as catastrophes maybe in the future or in the past we won't or didn't see them as catastrophic, but we do now because we're wearing catastrophic tinted glasses. The catastrophe is not in the external world. It's in our way of looking at them. It's in our visual apparatus or the lenses through which we're looking. And those can be changed. So we call this decatastrophizing when we learn that there are alternative ways of looking at what seem like catastrophic events. We also call it cognitive flexibility, the ability to look at things from different perspectives, to take those blue glasses that Nero was wearing off and put rose-tinted glasses on, or pink or purple or green glasses instead. And that insight, the ancients realised, Socrates mentions this both in dialogues of Plato and of Xenophon. It seems to have been a commonplace in the ancient world, but it's forgotten today. You know, sometimes these simple observations, this is how to teach philosophy to kids, by the way, these commonplaces, simple illustrations. You know, if other people feel differently about it, that's a clue that maybe it's not the thing itself that's causing the feeling, but it's our opinions, our judgments, our attitude towards it. Something about the way we're looking at it. And maybe in the future, we could look at it more like the, other, the way other people do. So training ourselves to get that separation between our perspective and the thing that we're responding to, and then exploring alternative ways of looking at what seem at first like catastrophes. Bees make sweet honey from bitter time. 
You make lemonade out of lemons, we say today. Bees make sweet honey from bitter thyme. The wise, likewise, according to Plutarch, draw something beneficial from even the most unfavourable circumstances. Because they learn to view what seem like catastrophes as opportunities. Looking at the positive or looking at the opportunities that lie in them or seeing them as transient. These are all alternative, more constructive ways of looking at setbacks or misfortunes. We should learn to say, not so bad after all, to misfortune, like Diogenes when he was driven into exile. Uh, Diogenes was exiled from Sinope and he came to Athens. He was, that's partly why he kind of lived like a beggar. Um, he was in a very lowly state when he arrived in, in Athens, in a sense. This not so bad after all. It's kind of like the tattoo that I have um, from Crates of Thebes. It says, Udin de non peponthas. Uh, nothing terrible has happened to you. This isn't so bad after all. It's decatastrophizing. Um, it's, like, it's such a concise little slogan. Um, it's a bit like today we talk about turning what if thinking into so what thinking. What if something bad happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? This is the typical way that worriers think, the conversation that they have going round and round in their heads. What if this happens? What if that happens? I would like, oh, what if something bad happens? So what if it happens? It's not the end of the world. It's what people tend to say instead when they pop out the other end of therapy. When somebody starts off as a worrier and they have effective therapy, over and over again, you'll see that by the end of it, they say, now I just say to myself, so what if it does happen? It's not the end of the world. So going from what if to so what is decatastrophizing. And Plutarch, many other ancient thinkers, seem to be aware of a similar process. Plutarch says that Diogenes used to go around saying, does not a good man consider every day to be a festival? The Greeks had these massive festivals, like the big music festivals that we have today, or the modern Olympic Games, all rolled into one. Um, but Diogenes said, does not a good man consider every day to be a festival? How does he do that? One of the problems that Plutarch does a, a good job of identifying is a kind of selective thinking that is very important today. It's a cognitive bias. It's related to things like confirmation bias. There's a lot of research on cognitive biases and different forms of mental filtration or selective thinking in the field of cognitive therapy. Why do you scrutinise too keenly your own trouble, my good sir, said Plutarch, and continue to make it ever vivid and fresh in your mind, but do not direct your thoughts to those good things which you have. Why? Because you're depressed, or you're angry, or you're anxious. You're doing threat monitoring. You're engaged in selective thinking. You've written a book. You've got 100 reviews. 99 of those reviews say your book's pretty good. Some of them even say it's the best book they've ever read. It's the best thing since sliced bread. One of those reviewers said it sucked. It was the worst book they've ever read. If you're depressed, you're going to be predisposed to only ruminating, dwelling upon, and thinking about the one bad review out of 100 that you got. You'll forget about all the other ones. And you'll go over and over that one in your mind like you're putting it under a microscope or a magnifying glass. You're hunting bad, as Plutarch puts it, when good is at hand. Now, you all know that other people do that a lot because you see them do it. But you would never do that because we don't notice when we're doing it. It's our bias. We don't notice our own biases. We can see the big plank of wood in another person's eye, but we don't see the little sliver of wood in our own eye. So we can learn, though, 
by looking at other people and think, if this is pretty common, maybe I'm doing it too. Hunting bad when good is at hand, engaging in selective thinking. We should focus instead on the complete picture, the more rounded picture. It's conducive to tranquility of mind, says uh, our well, emotional well-being, our resilience, says Plutarch. In the midst of happenings which are contrary to our wishes and in the face of adversity, not to overlook whatever we have that is pleasant and attractive, but mingling good with bad to cause the better to outshine the worse. So not to hide from the bad, but to notice the good and the bad side by side. Basically to have a more honest, truthful and balanced appraisal. Reality will save us. The truth will set us free in many cases. Because the truth goes beyond selective thinking. There's good and bad, ups and downs in our life. But the problem is that when we become emotional, we generally focus solely on the bad part of our experience and ignore the good. So we lose the balance. It's losing the balance that undermines our resilience, right? There's nothing wrong with bad experiences as long as we can take them in alongside the good experiences all mixed together. They, they compensate for one. And they make a, it makes a life worth living. Even though there's bad times in it, there's good times too. But we lose that perspective when we get upset. You see other people doing it all the time. You know they do. We should not overlook even common and ordinary things, but take some account of them and be grateful that we're alive and well and look upon the sun, is how Plutarch says it. He's a priest of Apollo, like, who's associated with the sun god. Absence and gratitude. These things, when they're present, will afford us greater tranquility of mind if we but imagine them to be absent. Now, this is very interesting. And remind ourselves often how desirable is health to the sick and peace to those at war and to an unknown stranger in so great a city the acquisition of reputation and friends and how painful it is to be deprived of these things when we once have had them. So we take things for granted is the point he's making and we have to make a conscious effort. You can listen to this talk, but unless you actually change your behaviour and make a conscious, sustained and deliberate effort to train yourself, as he said earlier, you're not going to experience gratitude and mental health in this kind of way. You have to actually spend time, invest time, like you're lifting dumbbells or something like that, training your mind like to choose to focus on experiencing gratitude systematically in order to shift your mental health long term. This is Plutarch's point. For it will not then be the case that we find each one of these things important and valuable only when it has been lost, but worthless while securely held. We take things for granted unless we imagine what it would be like if we didn't have them anymore. We have to use our imagination to do that. Cultivating gratitude, therefore, we should spend time deliberately contemplating with gratitude the most pleasant experiences of our own lives rather than always looking to externals and admiring the reputation and good fortune of others as adulterers do other men's wives, yet despising themselves and their own possessions. Marcus Aurelius makes the same or very similar point once again. We imagine what is absent being present and that causes craving. So normally we think, gee, I don't have a Ferrari, but, you know, that guy's got one. And imagine if I had one. That doesn't do anything except make me envious of other people's possessions. We're imagining what's absent. I don't have a Ferrari as if it were present. Gee, imagine if I did have one, though, how cool that would be. Instead, we should imagine what is present being absent. Now, 
that seems ridiculously simple in a sense or, or, or kind of trite you know I'm here in Montreal you know it was pouring with rain the other day imagine I didn't have a roof over my head imagine we didn't have food we didn't have electricity things that we profoundly take for granted instead we should imagine what is present as if it were absent in order to cultivate grab- gratitude it's not absent so we're training ourselves preemptively so that if one day we do lose it we're ready for that. Or if we lose other things, we have a general sense of resilience because we're used to imagining what it would be like to go without these things. This process is very deeply tied into the whole idea of impermanence that's derived from Heraclitus, the doctrine of Pantarei or everything flows that Marcus loves so much and goes on and on about. Because to imagine impermanence is inherently to imagine absence or loss and it transforms our emotional experience when we do that now i'm going to wrap up by mentioning a little bonus i said i'd give you three takeaways but i couldn't resist adding this one because again plutarch mentions something that we don't see that much in other ancient sources but it's very recognizable in modern therapy he says it's highly conducive to tranquility to examine if possible one's good fortune but if that's not possible to observe persons of inferior fortune and not, as most people do, to compare themselves with those who are superior in fortune. This upward and downward comparisons thing we know is pretty common among people who have clinical depression or generalised anxiety disorder in particular. For instance, those in prison account fortunate those who have been set free, and they, men born free, and free men citizens, and citizens in their turn the rich, and the rich satraps or governors, and satraps kings, and kings the gods. In other words, there's always somebody better off than you are. Always. Even if you're a celebrity, you're probably going to find somebody who is more successful, better looking, or wealthier, or happier than you are. You know, And the number of people that you don't compare yourself to you know, might vastly increase and the number of people that you can look up to might decrease, but you'll still do it and you'll still feel just as depressed, right? So Plutarch is saying, you know, the fact is that at the present time, uh, if you include all of the people that preceded you in history, the vast majority of them were much worse off than you were. Like, they they didn't have basic health care. Um, there isn't things like the internet or electricity or heating and stuff. You're incredibly privileged just by the fact that you're alive today. And we know that people who suffer from mental health problems often focus on upward comparisons. They're biased towards making upward comparisons. Maybe it's got something to do with the media and celebrity culture. Like, but they always want to be as successful or as rich or as good-looking or whatever as somebody... Uh, that they see in magazines and TV, and they don't stop to think, geez, they, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that can't even read or write. You know, I'm incredibly lucky that I've just got a roof over my head and I can pay the bills and feed my family and stuff. Like, so this bias towards upward comparisons is incredibly toxic, but it's extremely common in the society in which we live. What is this, says Plutarch, warns Plutarch? What is this other than collecting excuses for ingratitude? in order to chastise and punish oneself. Wow, you know, he's right. This is toxic stuff. He gives a really weird example. He says, get into the habit of comparing your circumstances to those worse off than you. And his weird example is, whenever you're lost in admiration of a man born in his litter, 
And this is an example of a litter, like it's a chair or a couch that's carried around by slaves. As if he was superior to you. Look how lucky that guy is, being carried around in his litter. He's got four slaves, I've only got two. Lower your eyes and gaze upon the litter bearers also. So you should think, geez, I'm glad I don't have to carry this fat senator around like all day long in the midday sun. Like, I'm lucky I'm not one of those guys. Like, so his illustration is, don't look at the uh, the person in the litter. Look at the people that are having to carry him around and be grateful that you're not in that position rather than envying the guy that depends on the labour of other people. Seneca gives examples like this as well, but he also talks about the fact that he was carried around in a litter by his slaves. And you see John Malkovich there portraying that in the recent movie. So I'm going to wrap up with just with one of my favourite quotes from this text because it ties into our non-profit project. Um, Plutarch says to his friend, the breeze is favourable that bears you to the muses and the academy as it was for Plato when he was buffeted there by the storm of Dionysus's friendship. So sometimes what seems like an adversity or misfortune it might actually work out for the best in the long run because it may be one of the things that motivates you to embrace philosophy and work on your character and build your resilience. It's often setbacks that motivate us to improve our lives. Life is full of paradoxes like that. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'll conclude on behalf of our friend Plutarch. Um, welcome, Lalia. And uh, maybe I'll <laughs> thank you for jumping in. I know Donald was going to introduce you. So um, I wasn't certain how he was going to introduce you. So maybe I'll let you introduce yourself and okay. uh, <laughs> pass it on to you. Okay. Hi. Well, hi, everybody. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm a writer and an editor on classics. I'm a classics teacher as well. Um, I taught in schools in the UK um private schools in uh uh school high schools um and uh yeah i've been um doing some uh editing with donald on his biography really amazing upcoming um biography of marcus aurelius for yale which is fantastic um and we've also been working together on his upcoming book about socrates which is also going to be really nice i mean i'm so privileged to be um, kind of, you know, working on that with him and discussing his ideas and, uh, talking about the idea of how you write about ancient lives and ancient people. Um, cause as part of my background, part of my training, I, um, studied, um, biography writing at a university in the UK, at the University of East Anglia. Um, and so I have quite a lot of experience in writing biographies as well. And, bringing together classics and the idea of writing about lives is uh, really wonderful. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really honored to be working with Donald and also um, doing some, uh, doing some things for Plato's Academy as well um, in Athens. I'm usually based in Athens, so I'm kind of um, on the ground there um, as all these exciting developments are happening in Greece, actually with renovations of museums. And um, it's, it's a really exciting time to be there. Um, so Donald wanted me to um, read a little bit from the Plutarch um, on tranquility, which um, some of you may know is written in Greek. Um, but I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read um, uh, a bit of a translation in English and uh, with a little bit of Greek at the end for anybody who's interested. 
Um, so Plutarch's on tranquility is is super interesting as well from a writing perspective because uh, he writes it in the form of what we would call these days a kind of commonplace book. So he's writing to a friend. It's it's epistolary as well. Uh, it's a letter, um, but it's also a kind of a collection of his thoughts which are in some ways prompted by sayings of the ancients, some of his famous, uh, his favorite writers and very famous writers like Euripides and so on. So he kind of meditates on the idea of the tranquility of the mind um, via um, the wisdom of, of, of ancient authors. So in the same way that we're reflecting on uh, the same way that we're reflecting on the, the ancient wisdom ourselves. Now we're reflecting on Plutarch Um Plutarch himself was reflecting on poetry and philosophy um, and plays that were written by authors even older than him. Um, so this is just a little bit um, from the Plutarch, which I'm going to read in English and then a little bit of Greek at the end. So he says, um, so just as the shoe is turned with the foot and not the contrary, so do men's dispositions make their lives like themselves. For it is not, as someone has said, habituation which makes the best life sweet to those who have chosen it, but rather wisdom which makes the same life at once both best and sweetest. Therefore, let us cleanse the fountain of tranquility that is in our own selves, in order that external things also, as if our very own and friendly, may agree with us when we make no harsh use of them, no harsh use of them. And then he quotes uh, from Euripides, Bellerophon. And Euripides says, uh, it does no good to rage at circumstance. Events will take their course with no regard for us. But he who makes the best of those events, uh, makes the best of those events he lights upon will not fare ill. And the Greek for that last little quotation, which is from Euripides, goes like this. Uh, so forgive my schoolmistress-like uh, pronunciation. Tois pragmasingar uchi fumusthai kreon melegar autois uden al huntukanon ta pragmat orthos antithei prase kalos. So um, thank you for listening. And uh, if you want to follow up on that, it is indeed uh, the link, I believe, has been posted on um, Plutarch's uh, On Tranquility. And I, I highly recommend reading it. Um, it's, it's really interesting as a, you know, just as a work of literature in the way that it's kind of multi-genred and multi-layered, both a letter, both a commonplace book. Um, and it's a kind of on a meta level, He's looking at the wisdom of the ancients in the same way that um, we're reflecting on his wisdom ourselves. So, uh, and it's beautifully written. So I recommend having a look and thank you for listening. <laughs>